Hey there, folks. This is Jeff Benjamin, along with my co-host, Bruce Kelly, for The Investment News Podcast. We have a couple of special guests this week. We're going to get into some great stuff. Bruce, what do we got going? Hey, Jeff. Well, we got a, we got a good one today. First off, we have a gentleman named Nick Harness, who is the Chief Information Officer at Kestra Financial, one of the big RIA, IBDs in the industry right now private equity backed, like many of them are, and out of Austin, Texas, which is a bit of a tech hub, as you know. And I spoke, I had the pleasure of speaking with Nick for a cover story that's coming out today about cybersecurity and IBDs in 2021. So how are you doing, Nick? Very well. Thank you, Bruce. Good afternoon and very nice to be with you. Yeah. Thanks so much for coming here. For coming on the podcast. And Nick, you and I got a chance to chat maybe, I don't know, a week, two weeks ago, something like that, about cybersecurity and, and IBDs. But before we get into all that, just if you don't mind telling us what you do at Kestra, you're the chief information officer there. That's a title that I think you're going to see increasingly across IBDs who've had chief technology officers in the past, but you're the chief information officer. What do you do? Well, I look after all things technology related. So if it sniffs of technology, I am going to be accountable and responsible for it, both at the broker dealer level at the home office, but also for delivering technology in the shape of a toolkit to our financial advisors. It covers the gamut from our infrastructure, people's devices and phone systems in some cases, their email platforms. All, through, all the way through their software applications, but also covering a lot of that area is security, cybersecurity, and risk from a technology perspective, making sure that we have all of the re- relevant controls in place to keep a safe and secure environment around our information and our systems. How much you know, daily or weekly or monthly interaction do you actually have with financial advisors, and Kestra is a big firm, you know, and a growing firm, do you guys have, or do you personally have, how much interaction do you have with the advisor? I would say on a regular basis, I, we speak with advisors probably once every couple of weeks uh, on my team directly. Much of what we do, we speak with advisors in forums, and we have, for example, an advisor council where we get feedback from our advisors directly on topics such as the technology that uh, they're using on our platform. Sometimes it's it's feedback from an advisor, which is something's not working. So quite often that's a little bit more ad hoc, but we routinely make sure that we check in with our advisors and, and understand what's working, what's not working. You and I chatted about, for this for the story that we did, about the solar winds, the so-called solar winds hack. Now with all the, the riots in, in, in Washington and the certification of the election and and the vote in Georgia, I think people, the, the solar winds hack happened in all the way in December, I think that came out. It's been happening for months, but it was kind of revealed, I think, after Thanksgiving in the first few weeks of, of December. So it almost seems like a decade ago in my mind. What was the solar winds hack, if you don't mind kind of summarizing it? What was it? What happened? Well, Fundamentally, the SolarWinds, SolarWinds is a company that owns technology that helps run infrastructure for a very large amount of firms across all industries and government agencies. 
and what the implication of that obviously is that everybody everybody was uh, potentially attacked through the exposure in the SolarWinds platform. The original source of that exposure took months to be identified, and there was no real way for users or firms that were using the SolarWinds platform to know that this was exposed until the news broke. So, Nick, just to make a point, the SolarWinds hack or the Russian hackers who attacked the government, 250 government agencies, I believe, at least, and then big companies, some of the biggest U.S. corporations, they took advantage of a weakness or a flaw in how SolarWinds was upgrading or updating its software, I believe. Again, I'm just a layman, so if I butcher anything, let me know. Is that correct? Essentially, it was exposed uh, during the development of the SolarWinds platform and then sat there for a long period of time until people started to upgrade to that new version. Correct. Now, the reason why I wanted to speak to you for this story was because independent broker-dealers and RIAs really rely heavily on third-party vendors for software. I, I saw from your, your profile that you also, you've worked at big banks in the past too, Morgan Stanley, I believe. And that's why I wanted to talk to you because third-party vendors could, are, are IBDs that rely on third-party vendors, are they susceptible to these kinds of cyber hacks or cyber attacks? I, I mean, the short answer is that, as you've indicated, nobody is immune in this case. This highlighted that there is no immunity to this type of attack. Uh, There's no knowing that you are going to be exposed without knowing a great deal about the firms uh, and the underlying vendors and software that you're using. Uh, And to a very large degree, you're, you're dependent on trusting those platforms to be secure. And whether you're a large firm or small firm, Everybody's going to be using a, to a very large degree, external software in this case. And if there is a risk exposed in that software, there is no way of knowing that without a great deal of due diligence, but you're not going to be immune to it. Yeah, I think people say, you know, when I, and and the people I spoke to for this article, a number of executives and analysts and, and technology people like yourself, it's, it's not, it's an honor. It's not a matter of if a cyber attack or something is going to happen at a broker dealer, but when. Correct. Absolutely. But what what can you what can a firm do? What kind of should be on the short list of concrete steps that a, a, a large brokerage or an RIA should do to avoid having a third party vendor that doesn't meet the appropriate criteria? So. In terms of onboarding, when you're selecting and onboarding a new third-party software, one of the things, as I just mentioned, is due diligence. And some of that due diligence you may want to do yourself, but because it's a relatively complex topic, there are even very large firms tend to outsource that that function and and use third parties, for example, uh, FIS or 3PAS, 3PAS is, is another company. They are very good at going through systematically all of the cyber controls and 
looking at the whereabouts their infrastructure is sitting, looking at the actual buildings and the access to those buildings, all of the typical types of risks associated with software that the vendor should also be prepared for uh, and answering those questions. And most vendors that, that we work with will be able to provide documentation. But again, it is a very complex topic and you really want to be able to get some advice on how to go about that due diligence and or outsource it to some of the third parties I mentioned. Right. This is where, and when I speak to you know senior people at large organizations like your CEO, Dave's Poor, this is where they kind of say, "Hey, this is you know this is why that little brokerage or small RIA needs to needs to align themselves or come under our roof because we have the heft to be able to." work with these type of outside consultants who can make sure that our systems are tight, even though you would think that the that the federal government, which is the largest organization in the world, right? The US federal government most likely would have its eye on on the ball here, but they dropped it, obviously. Yes. I, I, you know, the, there's multiple factors going to that, I think. One of them is just the fact that the fintech, the technology landscape, fintech, wealth tech, whatever we want to call it, grows so rapidly and some of the firms that some of the firms that we depend upon are relatively small firms unto themselves because they are niche. Now, if you think about the independent advisor space within wealth management, there are hundreds of technology companies that support just our industry. And someone's always coming up with a hot new tool as well, right? A hot new product. Oh, you gotta have this, right? Absolutely. And not to say that those firms should not have all of the, the security and cyber controls in place themselves, but the exercise of going through and validating that with each and every one of those companies is exhausting, not just for the broker dealer and the, and the independent advisor, but for the vendor themselves and it is because of the complexity of it. Jeff, I think you had a, a question for Nick, right? Yeah, yeah, thank you very much. And thanks, Nick, uh, for being here. I- I have kind of a rudimentary question, actually. Like, <laughs> what what is the recourse for advisors and their clients if something like this, something like the Voya example in Bruce's story, happens? And I mean, are they protected by the mother? That was more of a phishing. That was an example of a phishing scam where people posing as advisors got into the system. Right. But what 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 kind of recourse or what kind of do the do these firms they back this up or are you know is everyone on their own? It sort of depends, but as an independent advisor, typically you're still running your own technologies. A large, a large chunk of the technology they use is still their own under their own license agreement. In which case, they they have to ha- handle it uh, on their own. Now, obviously, as a broker dealer, we'll do everything we can to support it. But something like, first of all, the due diligence process. If they choose technologies outside of what the broker dealer is recommending or support. They need to make sure that they have that due diligence process in, in place themselves. In the case of an attack uh, and an actual exposure, what I would say is that they need to be able to monitor and detect and understand what those threats are. And if something happens, react to it effectively and quickly. And in terms of the, the fallout from an attack, thinking about Insurance, for example, cyber insurance is no longer just a rider to an E&O policy any longer. Uh, you, can, you can buy full cyber policies and thinking about how you would insure yourself. Does Kestra have one of those, Nick? Uh, so Kestra does have our own cyber policy insurance, but we do not cover uh, independent advisors. Right. 
Yeah, every time I, I read one of these stories like this, Nick, I, it just helps remind me another reason why there's so much consolidation in the RIA space right now. I mean, they all talk about leveraging scale and technology right. and everything. But yeah. man, if you're an RIA of any size and you're thinking, I do not want to have to deal with this. I want somebody to have my back. I can understand why they might want to just partner with somebody. Yes, there's a lot of risk involved and a lot of expertise is required. And to to bring all of that under your own umbrella is going to be very expensive and not very cost effective. Mm-hmm. Hey, Nick, that was great information. That was a great uh, chat. Thank you so much for coming. Well, thank you very much for having me. Software, apps, beta versions, updates. What? Technology is meant to make your life simpler and more efficient, especially as a business owner and financial advisor. And there is a lot of incredible tech out there. But that's the catch. There is a lot of tech out there and it changes fast. Faster than that stoplight around the corner. You know the one that only lets one car through. That's why we're here. That's Nicole Kasperson, fintech reporter for Investment News. And that's John Alaka, deputy managing editor here at IN. On TechStacks, our brand new podcast. It's not just a beta version, folks. We're covering all things fintech. We'll have regular interviews with developers, entrepreneurs, advisors, and investors to give you real insights into trends, what's in store for the future, and which tech may help you and your business now. Each monthly episode, we'll delve into an important topic so that you have the information you need to grow your business and your stack. Launching on January 26th on investmentnews.com and wherever you get your podcasts. All right, now we're shifting over to our colleague in Washington, D.C., Mark Sheff, talking to us about all things Washington, where there is a lot going on right now. Mark, can you give us a little bit of a lay of the land here? Hi, Jeff and Bruce. Thanks for having me on again. There's been no shortage of controversy and (laughs) uproar. In well, you used to work at Congress. You used to be a staffer in Congress, right? Yes. Back, uh, I came to Washington originally in 1992 to work on the uh, Senate side, to work for a, a senator, the late Senator Richard Luger of Indiana, and I became his press secretary in the mid-90s. Right. So how do you uh, feel but, about all this stuff, first of well, all? Well, Washington think, is-, is in a tumult that I have never seen in almost 29 years here. This is unprecedented in so many ways, highlighted by a a breathtaking and appalling attack on the Capitol by a mob that was supporting President Trump and trying to, at best, influence, at worst, intimidate Congress into rejecting the electoral vote count and giving the president a second term. The president helped incite this uh, crowd with his baseless claims about the election outcome uh, over um, well, the last three months, certainly. But he warned us he was going to do this if he lost uh, way back in, in February. So what this has led to is a situation that, interestingly enough, is affecting campaign finance contributions. Right. Here's, here's the situation. There were about 13 senators and more than 100 members of the House who uh, indicated that they would object to the uh, electoral vote counts in Arizona and Pennsylvania. The senators and many House members made this clear 
well before the January 6th congressional certification of the Electoral College vote. So on Wednesday, January 6th, the certification vote had just gotten underway when the Trump mob broke into the Capitol. the, The riot happened right when they were starting the vote. Right when they were starting. So the riot interrupted the vote count. The rioters were. So what does this all mean then, Sheffy? I'm getting there. I'm getting there. The the rioters were all cleared out of the Capitol. And then lawmakers came back to the House and Senate and continued the Electoral College vote count. And in the end, I believe it was eight senators and a hundred and almost 140 House members voted against certifying either the Arizona count or the Pennsylvania count or both. After the riot. After the riot. So what uh, financial firms have done and interest groups that represent the financial industry have done is is halt political spending, halt campaign contributions to those lawmakers who objected to the presidential results, because those lawmakers are seen by many people as having contributed to the atmosphere that stoked up the rioters and contributed to the to really well, the wait, blasphemy minute, that happened Mark, at the Capitol. Mark, I, I didn't realize that it was that targeted to the uh, oh, yeah. stopping funding to specific lawmakers because we know what Schwab did. They basically shut down their pack altogether. Well, there, there was a two-step there, Professor. You know, it was two, right. two different things were going on over the weekend after the, the riots. So the riots occurred the 6th, so over the weekend of the 9th and the 10th, Mark, I believe you had big corporations like Marriott, right, saying we're not yeah. going to donate to these specific congressmen anymore. Then you also had Morgan Stanley took the same tactic. They were very specific. They're saying we're not going to donate to the people who voted against Joe Biden in the Electoral College vote. Right. Um, who, who, so, but then there was another type of firm too, Sheffy, right? Yeah. Right. So some firms said no donations to the objectors. Some firms said we're halting all donations. And then um, so uh, some Schwab, were very targeted. And then some just said, oh, we're just going to halt donations for six months or 12 months. Right. And so so the, what seems to be the most popular approach is to halt all donations for a few months until these firms and trade associations rethink their policies for their political action committees. And the political action committees are the structures that collect contributions from employees or trade association members, pool them in the political action committee fund, and then that PAC fund distributes money to lawmakers. In other words, the PACs then make contributions to individual lawmakers. How much money did Wall Street PACs or financial services PACs give to senators and congressmen last year, Chef? Do we know? Well, it's I, I don't believe the final numbers are in yet because the final quarter of the election cycle hasn't What's been filed. What's your best number? But, uh, you know, it could be, um, uh, you know, it's, it's in the um, tens of millions, certainly. Tens of millions of dollars. Tens of, absolutely tens of millions. I don't have the number in front of me, but typically... Wall Street is a big donor to these to these campaigns. But but you have to look at it, look a layer deeper to, to see what the impact might be. And the impact might not be as great as you think. Because remember that these PACs 
are limited in what they can give to an individual lawmaker. A PAC can give $5,000 per election. That is $5,000 in the primary, $5,000 in the general election for a total $10,000 contribution. So if, say, Eli Lilly, and I, I believe Eli Lilly has in Indiana, uh, said it's not going to donate to the Hoosier members of Congress who voted to object to the presidential results, then that means that that $10,000 contribution from those lawmakers can't rely on that $10,000 contribution from Lilly anymore. Now, if a member of Congress raises, say, $2 million for to run for a, a seat in the House, and there are some districts where $2 million is sort of the table stakes, $10,000 from Lilly is not going to make a, a huge difference. And and remember what Schwab did is Schwab shut down its- Well, Schwab did a two-step, right? At the beginning of this week, they said one thing, and then at the in the middle of the week, they said another. So why don't well, you go over- Schwab, exactly. Schwab first halted all donations, and then later in the week said, okay, we're going to shut down our pack. Right. And donate the money to charity instead. Donate the money to the Boys and Girls Clubs and also to diversity initiatives. But remember that the Charles Schwab, and I have it right in front of me, the Charles Schwab Corporation Political Action Committee donated through late November about $541,000 to lawmakers running for Congress. That's not a huge amount of money as campaign spending goes. And, And what Schwab did not do, and in fact, what Schwab can't do because it would be a violation of the First Amendment is tell its employees as individuals, don't you contribute to them? Because the Schwab pack is one thing, but then individual Schwab employees also give quite a bit of money sure. to well, Charles uh, campaigns. Well, Schwab himself is a, has been a big donor Well, right, and, uh, and for, to, to Trump and to other Republicans, I believe, right? For Charles Schwab Corporation, okay, Charles Schwab Corporation does not give money to campaigns. It's either the Schwab pack or individual Schwab employees and directors. But if you add in the individual employees and directors, you're talking about, well, here it says uh, to um, congressional candidates, uh, $923,016 went to Republicans in 2020 and $428,955 went to Democrats in 2020. That is all spending by any entity or any person associated with Schwab. So anyway, it uh, individual employees at Lilly could still give to the members of Congress in Indiana who voted against certification. And more importantly, they can do uh, what's called bundling. So, so a Schwab employee, a Lilly employee could become a bundler for a campaign and draw together a dozen or more of his or her friends to give money to that campaign. Bundling is a big deal in campaign finance. You know, an individual can do that because that's yeah, a, but that's I, just people. People can do that. That's really got nothing to do with where you work. That doesn't have anything to do with where you work. But but don't get me wrong. I mean, just because Eli Lilly is not making PAC donations or Schwab is not making PAC donations does not mean that people affiliated with Lilly, with Lilly and Schwab aren't going to be deeply involved in elections. But right. it's, 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 don't overestimate. I, I'm what I'm saying is that we're what we're talking about here is the 
the the message being sent by right, corporations, the, especially those yeah. in financial services. And what I see this as is uh, mostly a, a kind of a PR move. We were getting press releases denouncing the, the Capitol Hill riots and protests before the halls were even cleared. And these companies, you know, I think this is a big temporary thing. First of all, companies don't donate to political to politicians because it doesn't work. They donate because it does work. Unfortunately, buying Congress is or buying politicians is a good business. And these companies you know, will continue to do it. I, I don't they see spend, any reason. Well, look, to I think they, there was how much was spent on the two Georgia runoff races, $500 million or something like that. A lot. I mean, I didn't look at all that before coming dollars, on. Think, yes, you know, sure. So. And, and of course, these firms are going to still lobby. In fact, Schwab said that in its statement. Just because we're shutting down our PAC doesn't mean that we're not going to continue a, to try to influence PR public message, policy. I think companies I know, are Jeff, trying I'm to not so cynical. It's a lot of money. This. It's still, you know, $500,000 is still $500,000 that, that Schwab did. Yeah, you but know? what I'm saying is it, I think it's, did, it's temporary. It's going to be... You know, this is a temporary pullback until the dust settles. And and it's it's done because there's so much attention around this. And Mark and I, you, Mark, you and I talked about this earlier in the week. Maxine Waters, she made direct and specific calls for unrest and she got it. And there was nobody pulling back contributions to her at that time because it didn't get the same kind of attention as this. So, uh, you know, it's 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 on the spotlight. You, you've brought up a, a situation that these um, uh, corporations and uh, trade associations are going to have to bring up in, in their discussions with their boards when it comes to PAC policies. Uh, for instance, if we're not going to donate to lawmakers who voted to object to the, the presidential vote, what other kinds of actions by lawmakers are going to disqualify them from receiving donations from our PAC. How wide? Yeah, it's how a slippery wide slope. I mean, be how careful wide what you ask for. Do you have? I mean, yes. I don't think that Charles Schwab PAC gives any money to Maxine Waters. I might be wrong. I, I you might be surprised. You might be surprised. I mean, she I is think the ranking they, Democrat on, on the Financial Services Committee, Mark, right? But Well, yes. And, and that means, look, all of these PACs give uh, uh, to, to members of Congress on both sides of the aisle, right. and, exactly. they tend to, and they tend to focus on the committees of jurisdiction over the issues they care about. The House Financial Services Committee, which is chaired by Maxine Waters, is a, just a, a funding oasis for, you know, a lot of times, <laughs> right. Right. really, I mean, political parties often put their vulnerable freshmen on the Financial Services Committee, members from tough districts where they barely won. Are put on the on the on the financial services committee because they can just vacuum up money there. It's financial services, energy and commerce, those are committees where you just you almost just have to maintain a heartbeat in order to scoop up a lot of PAC money. <laughs> so these PAC boards, they're going to have to decide how far do we take this. Are we just going to look at the presidential objector, objectors, or are we going to look at any member of Congress who may have What's said to constituents and others? Hey, why don't you go out there and and protest this this wrong in society? And and a lot of people might say, well, that's that's okay because they're just encouraging their their constituents to make their voices heard. And 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 you could certainly make the argument that what Maxine Waters called for with regard to uh, protests against 
racial injustice can't be compared to a mob that tries to overrun the Capitol to change the election of a presidential outcome. I mean, there are two very different things, two very different goals there. But these are questions that will come up in these meetings between in these meetings at um, PAC boards. Right. We're running up on time here, Mark. What's your what's your final take on all this? Uh, my final take actually comes down pretty close to where Jeff is. I believe after the dust settles, uh, what what Schwab did will be the outlier in terms of shutting down a PAC entirely. The PACs will make policy changes, and and these presidential vote objectors could at least for the next cycle, uh, that is the 2022 election, they might not get contributions from these uh, companies. But you know, in 2024, 2026 political memories may fade and they may be back in the good graces of these financial firms and financial uh, industry trade groups. Good stuff, Mark. It's always fun to have you on here. And especially when you agree with me, that, that gets you, uh, you know, another foot in the door for, uh, for next week. And uh, actually, I think we're going to see you again next week. Uh, so yeah, so yeah, I'm, I'm looking, looking forward, forward to, that. to that. You have, you are very insightful and very in tune there in Washington. <laughs> Thanks, Mark. Thank you both. It was great to be here. Hey, Jeff, that was another great episode of the Investment News Podcast. Yes, sir. As you know, Jeff, we launch every Monday, and that was a particularly special episode of the Investment News Podcast. We want to thank our special guests. We had guests, not guests this week. We had two. We also want to thank Stephen Lamb, our producer. And if you're listening or want to find it or tell a friend about the podcast, you can find it at investmentnews.com, of course, and Apple, Spotify, Google Play, and Stitcher. Leave a review on Apple for us, please, if you can. And also follow us on Spotify. If you have questions or comments, reach out to us via Twitter. Uh, Jeff is at Benji Ryder and me, I'm at BD News Guy. Stay tuned and we'll be talking to you next week.